0: Welcome to another episode of Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Kirsten Holder, and today we're talking with three outstanding community members about quite a heavy topic, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, observed this month in October. I'd just like to issue a warning for anyone listening, but also to reassure that we will be spending time Of course, understanding domestic abuse and its severity, but also what is being done or what can be done to alleviate families and victims who are suffering. The women on this podcast are doing such tremendous work in this area, and I'd love to start with some introductions. So, if you would just give a little wave as I mention your name, and uh, we'll go on down the list. So, Kate Bacon is the executive director of Family Builders, which is a nonprofit that works on ending domestic violence and child abuse cycles. Family Builders offers parenting programs, community education, batterers programs, and co-parenting and divorce programs as well. Kendra Clements is the founder and CEO of We the People Consulting, a native woman-owned and operated culturally competent advisory and management solutions consulting firm. The company specializes in developing vision, building strategy, brands, bridges and creating sustainable solutions for clients and communities while working closely with the Native American tribes, organizations, educational institutions, and the government sector. Kendra is also the founding wellness teacher at Sovereign Community Schools, which is an OKC. and she has a natural skill set in helping kids de-escalate, creating safe space and mentoring young ones through healing practices. Kim Garrett is the CEO and Founder of Calmar Oklahoma City's Family Justice Center. Kim has such a long list of awards for her civilian service and anyone who knows her I'm sure is well aware of that. Most recently has begun consulting with the Alliance for Hope International to build family justice centers. She also serves on Governor Stitt's Criminal Justice Restore Task Force and serves nationally for the Office for Victims of Crime Technology Initiative. I am so glad the three of you are here and I'm so excited to dive in. So introductions aside, we are just gonna go on with our podcast today. To give some background in Oklahoma, we consistently rank among states with the highest rates of women killed by men. 2020 produced the highest numbers of domestic violence reports in the last 20 years. Until this year, domestic abuse charges were classified as nonviolent by Oklahoma law. This resulted in less time served by offenders and added to the stigma that domestic violence is a private family problem rather than a matter for the courts. Now that it has been added to the list of violent crimes, offenders are now required to serve at least 85% of their sentence. And of course, when we hear these things, our heart sinks. It is just horrible and horrifying. And it might be easy for someone who hasn't experienced abuse themselves to say, how can someone possibly stay in a relationship where they're being hurt like that? And why don't they just leave? For victims, and many of uh, our listeners might be, this isn't always easy to do, much less to see it in the frame of being a victim and having an abuser. So I'd love to hear you all talk about the reasons that this might be the case, um, including if there's any scenarios you've observed where it might be hard for a victim to leave their abuser. Um, Kate, I'd love to start with you.
1: Sure, thank you. Um, You know, an abuser and a victim, it's such a complex dynamic. Um, And a lot of times what we notice at Family Builders is the the reality of, the abuser following through with their threats and these are really scary threats uh, you know threats of i'm going to kill you i'm going to kill or harm your animal i'm going to take our children away um, you don't have anything without me financially your home is gone these are good enough threats for anybody to to just quote unquote stick it out And then on the other spectrum of things, you know that the abuser will follow through with the hope of their promises of changing, and this is a lot of times where we see that really, really uh, complex uh, psychological impact of a victim versus the their abuser because it's a lot of minimizations of behaviors. You know, we have more good days than bad. It wasn't. It isn't what it seems to be, and things are going to get better. Everything's on the up and up. And so when you have one of these scenarios, and a lot of times they're, they're really both of these scenarios into one household, it's really complex and it's not easy to walk up and leave. And so we see a lot of our victims staying because of those, those reasons.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm sure some of that, even though it's hard to hear and hard to reckon with is so true. Um, Kim, I'd love to hear your perspective.
2: Sure um it's actually one of the questions i get asked the most is why does she stay and i think it's a really fascinating and painful question to hear because the abuser is completely omitted from that question and we should really be asking as a society why is that person abusing another person why are they using power and control and focusing on helping that person so they don't abuse their partner or their children um and so People are really surprised to learn that for survivors, their rate of violence actually increases significantly when they leave. It is actually what we consider a flashpoint where um, the risk of homicide increases significantly. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of complicated dynamics that Kate mentioned of why survivors stay. Um, Some of it is like they love their partner and they they love that person and sometimes it is good. there's also a financial component. We see a lot of spiritual and religious abuse being integrated into why people stay. Um, and a lot of women stay because they wanna protect their kids. And if you're a divorce and not with them, you can't protect them. It makes it really complicated. And so there's a lot of reasons.
0: Yes, it's not just what we see on the surface. You're absolutely right. There's so many factors that come into these heavy decisions um, Kendra, I'd love to hear your perspective as well.
3: Sure. And I, you know, first of all, I appreciate, uh, the comments, uh, that, that, the two ladies shared before. I won't repeat any of the things that, you know, I know that we all, as, uh, people who are working directly with, with women who are, um, in these, in these toxic, uh, harmful, violent relationships, I think we all share that. Um, what I, what I would like to say though, is that as a, as an as an indigenous person, um, kind of immersed in my uh, indigenous communities, um, I also do work with. I'm a co-creator in an organization called Matriarch, and with Matriarch, we do a lot of uh, direct uh, work with indigenous women, um, some of which who are attached to our uh, organization via you know the chapters that we're in um, currently and or. Uh, community members who have been referred to us. Um, what I will say is that arguably uh, indigenous women have the highest rates of um, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual violence, um, and so we are, uh, the the phone never stops ringing uh, for us in our community. Um, we also have an interesting uh, relationship with with um, police and our government and policy and on and on and on and so there's a, a, a and uh, access to resources as well uh, it seems to be a bit challenging uh, for our communities and so uh, what we do and what we see uh, at matriarch is um, we provide direct services and resources palomar has been one of those incredible resources for us thank you for doing the work that you do um, and, and we help our ladies kind of move through a system that oftentimes is not friendly and, or accepting of, um, their cases or our cases, um, or just hard to get to. So we have a lot of women who are rural as well, uh, in rural communities. Um, what I would also say is, um, is that, you know, uh, reasons saying there is yes, a lot of spiritual, uh, abuse, um, there's, there's, we, we see a lot of that stuff in our uh, communities. But being able to focus on, uh, focus our programming on uh, trauma healing, um, and really, really helping uh, our ladies who, oftentimes, and this is, you know, not individual or unique uh, to other communities, but a lot of this stuff is generational. Um, and so, helping our ladies navigate through, uh, and encouraging, of course, their young ones and their kids to. To sit in on these classes and, and these discussions that we have with one another, um, you know, encouraging them to by way of resources and/or services, uh, teaching them, helping them, training them uh, through, you know, here's how to balance a checkbook, here's how to get access to a savings account, here's how to save, here's how to, and it's all the things that, you know, uh, that, that how to checklist, and so. Um, We do focus on solution and we, we are, you know, we spend a little bit of time with our ladies and and understanding and kind of connecting to that trauma understanding it is one thing but knowing how to work around it and work with it is another. Um, And then, and then growing them (laughs) right into the middle, into the center of, you know, a bunch of love, compassion, resources, and services. Um, So that's a, aside from we, the people, but that is just that direct work that I do with Matriarch.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that, Kendra, because that is one of the reasons we have you here today, and you touched on two important points um, that I really appreciate, and one is access, even just geographically. Um, We get blessed in being in the metro area, where sometimes we think something's a little too far, but there are many people in further out communities that it's really too far. It's just not feasible for them to get there. So that that is a very real reality. Um, And the other one you kind of touched about is uh, generational um, abuse, the cycle of abuse and breaking that. Um, That's always been an issue, but I think the pandemic especially has put pressures Mm -hmm. on family even more specifically. of course those in in just you know quote unquote normal households but also households um that have very volatile relationships or pressure points during the shutdown access to many of our safeguard community members were also severed or at least very hard to be in touch with and i'm talking about neighbors and friends um extended family members uh pediatrician checks teachers, coworkers, all the people that you might come into contact with um, personally or your kids might that can just have a second pair of eyes on what's going on. So I'd love to talk about what is especially dangerous to people who are living in abusive relationships when um, these community uh, relationships um, are inaccessible. Um, And Kim, we'll start with you.
2: Sorry about that i'm having a problem with, with the mute okay so um obviously covid was a significant and had a significant impact on survivors of domestic violence initially we saw our numbers go up 28 percent which is significant when you really think about the number and then also the dynamics became so much more complicated um survivors and their children were forced to stay at home with their abuser. Whereas going to school or work was almost like a protective factor, like they could get away for eight hours a day organically and have a a safe reason to go to something. They didn't have that anymore. Um, And so then you've also got the added layers of COVID where um, there was loss of jobs, increase in alcohol and other drugs, and um, loss of support or access to support. And so it made volatile situations even worse, and um, I certainly don't think COVID or any of these things caused domestic violence. I wanna be clear about that. These are underlying conditions that were there before, but many of the families, they were exasperated, like intensified with COVID. Um, And in some really interesting cases, we saw abusers refusing to let victims get access to healthcare, um, cleaning items, hygiene items so they could protect themselves um, from exposure. Um, so it was pretty heartbreaking to see some of how it, domestic violence played into the pandemic.
0: Using power and control and exploiting fear at any point. Yeah, that is, that's horrifying. Um, Kendra, from your perspective and your work with Matriarch, uh, what would you like to add?
3: Yeah, I mean, I can I can certainly, uh, same, same, same with with all the things that were just mentioned. Um, And again, you know, a lot of our, uh, the women, the ladies, the young ones that we do work with, um, considerable amounts of them have been, you know, because they are considered urban Indians uh, living in the metro area, and or just a little bit outside of that. Uh, Many of us have been, um, you know, put in positions where we don't necessarily have access to our direct tribal communities. Um, a lot of our tribal communities are in you know the southeastern part of the state or the northeastern part of the state are just kind of spattered around in these more rural uh, communities. And so that in and of itself, um, you know, you add COVID and this pandemic on where we are stuck at home, and now we have no access. We can't get in the car. We can't drive to our tribal communities. We can't um, you know be with our families. We can't be with our aunties, which are a huge uh, piece of healing and comfort and an additional layer of caretaker uh, and guardian in our communities, we couldn't do that anymore uh, because a lot of our tribal communities were literally just closing, uh, closing down, shutting off. Um, our uh, community events were closed. Our powwows were closed. Our sweat lodges were closed. So the things that we did to uh, you know, help heal ourselves traditionally uh, and spiritually, that was closed too. And so there were so many things that were just closing in um, and keeping a lot of our ladies isolated. Um, and, and of course the babies are at home with them in these um, you know, volatile, violent, unhealthy relationships um, and living arrangements. And um, we, we, we sadly, I mean, we, we have lost touch with, with a few of our ladies and it's, it's frightening um, because we can't, we can't reach them. And so we don't know, um, you know what the um, what the condition is, or what's happened. Um, and so, uh, it's been COVID has certainly um, not only isolated people at home, but for us, um, you know, our just being able to hop in the car and go to our families for reprieve, um, which we do often, and or jump into our sweat lodges, like participate in our cultural activities, which is healing. Um, we couldn't do that either, so it's been very, very difficult.
0: Kate, is there anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, since we work uh, with the offenders of domestic violence, you know, it it mirrors what Kim was saying. Since March of 2021, we've seen a 25% increase in clientele. And I think what we've noticed the most, you know, obviously quarantine or isolation is the worst case scenario for any household that has victims inside of it. But the factors that have revolved around COVID, in the sense of, you know, housing has fallen out from underneath people. Um, you know, the children are at home. You're trying to learn how to be their teacher. Things are just chaotic, and that is the recipe for disaster for an abuser, because they they have to have control. And so we have seen so much more of our self coping mechanisms with substances skyrocket because of that and we've seen like Kim was saying just grasping at any levels of control that they can muster and when you've taken away leaving the house because of under quarantine it is a lot of times unfortunately um access to just the smallest of things like um internet and um phone and and uh self-protection uh, like masks and and Clorox wipes and stuff. So um, it, it has not been a good thing by any means of quarantine and we are seeing the ripple effects as society comes back into the norm of how those people have been living behind the doors.
0: There's nothing good about what we're talking about today but I do hope that um, many people listening to this podcast our leaders in our state and our country start to take a second look at these real problems that were real, like you said, before the pandemic, that were very severe before the pandemic, and now a spotlight is being shown on just how bad things can be. Um, I hope we can go up from here, and I know we're going to talk about solutions a little bit later in this podcast, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but... um, So Muskogee, Kay, and McCurtain and Graven counties in 2020 reported the highest rates of domestic violence, but I don't want anyone to misunderstand. um, Abuse is not isolated to one geographic area, one socioeconomic level, one culture, one type of family. The insidious behavior is not segmented um, and doesn't discriminate. Kate and Kim, can you share any examples or statistics of recorded incidents that do not know borders among any demographic of family? Uh, let's see Kate we'll start with you.
1: Sure um, you know this is one of my hottest questions is they want to know you know ind- individuals want to know what does this family look like? who are these people? And if you look at our demographics served within my organization, with the exception of Hispanic culture, because we we refer those individuals out to the uh, Latino Development Agency to receive services in Spanish, we really do mirror the demographics of Oklahoma County, um, whether that's uh, race or um, socioeconomic. Now, that being said, I, I think the primary emphasis on who these families are that we're serving are where where our law enforcement is serving as well and i say that because a lot of times we see individuals that have other criminal um, things with them you know the substance abuse the uh you know the we have lots of you know petty burglary, bur- bur- petty theft, I can't say that word right now. Um, and they're not behind the, the picket fences and the uh, what we would consider the higher income areas because we don't patrol those areas the same way. So I think it is misrepresented of who these families are. But at the same time, now that our laws are beginning to match the crime, we are seeing more of that representation happen. Um, and, you know, it is a generational aspect. And I will just kind of flatly put this out here that Oklahoma in specific, I think has a a very um, violent generational cycle. You look how our state began and did not begin uh, peacefully. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is really embedded in who we are as Oklahomans regardless of who you are and where you come from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the, the natural intuition to say it's none of our business, that's a good family, I, I bank with them, they, they're a firefighter, they're a community uh, involver, is really dismissing the, the reality that um, it's our be- almost our inherited behavioral issues that we, we hold as part of our culture and whole. So, I don't know if that really answers a whole lot, but I think that's what we see, we're starting to see with the laws kind of shifting somewhat.
0: I appreciate you saying all of that. And um, I do appreciate, you know, obviously the laws being shifted and us seeing a population more reflective of the numbers um, of people we see in Oklahoma. And I just want to point out that those numbers that we have are only the reported incidents. So you can imagine the number of unreported incidents are probably way more numerous than we even have a grasp on Um, at least we have some data but um, it's definitely not a full picture kim is there anything you'd like to add to that
2: katie said a lot of great stuff um i would just say that domestic violence does not discriminate i think there's a typical response that people tend to think it's like those people that maybe look differently or have different socioeconomic backgrounds or education or things like that. But the reality is it's not reflected in any of the data.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, Annually,
2: I get um, a map of calls to 911 that are domestic related in Oklahoma City. And in 2020, there were over 38,000 calls. And I always say that's the equivalent of filling Chesapeake Arena twice Mm -hmm. if you want a visual. to quantify that and um and when you look at the map it's in galardia and quail creek and it's on the north side and south side and east side and and i think it's always a powerful thing to use when i'm speaking to the general public because they're surprised and and i mean it's important that they realize like these are not those people these are our neighbors our friends these are some of us and it does not discriminate and um yeah, so.
0: Thank you for saying that and painting that picture as well because um, you're so right. I mean, if you went around the room, no one knows what any of us are struggling with, um, especially situations like this. And Kendra, I wanna pull you in because while abuse can't occur in any family, it is so important to highlight the severity of abuse among indigenous women. And you mentioned this earlier, In the past decade, more than 700 indigenous people, mostly girls, were reported missing in the same state of Wyoming, which, of course, has become infamous for the disappearance of Gabby Petito. Um, And additionally, homicide is the third leading cause of death among Native girls and women aged 10 to 24. Young girls and women aged 10 to 24, and the fifth leading cause of death for Native women aged 25 to 35, according to the Department of Justice. Kendra, why are incidents of missing Indigenous people not highlighted, and what needs to be done, especially to protect Native Native women and girls?
3: I first of all, thank you so much for highlighting uh, the Native women and girls, um, and and. The you know this crisis that is MMIW or MMIWP right? because we are uh, really intentional about recognizing people so that we're not uh, we have a lot of men uh, and boys who go missing as well and that seems to be something that's been kind a of bit underreported as well and under underreported uh, statistic um, so thank you for for bringing that forward and shining light on that um, you know unfortunately the answer is so long that we would need. Multiple podcasts, uh, but to to kind of summarize it and and highlight uh, some of the issues, uh, you know, um, you hear a lot, or maybe you don't hear a lot about. Well, um, we've got these jurisdictional uh, issues. You know, you guys are sovereign nation, you're a tribe, you have your own light horsemen who are our law enforcement. Um, You have these jurisdictional, these boundaries. Um, We can't send our police into your areas. Oh, by the way. McGirt has come about, these are all excuses really. Um, the, the, at the end of the day, um, our indigenous communities, our women, our girls, our boys and our men who go missing at these high, high rates, um, we are just, we have been forgotten. We are not a part of those uh, solutions or conversations or, or points of action. Um, Up until the 80s, um, sterilization of Indigenous women, uh, forced sterilization of Indigenous women took place. Um, We are a population of people, a group of people um, who has just been caught up in that system of oppression, racism, um, and and just kind of shoved to the side. And so when these crises um, are are going on and taking place, um, it has been our experience, there's just a multitude of excuses as to why it can't be fixed. uh, we what we have done um, and what we've done for you know hundreds of years is that when there are issues and obstacles and crises um, within our own communities what we know is, is that we can't always re- uh, rely on uh, the government we can't rely on our police force we can't rely on uh, services we can't rely on resources and so we go in and we kind of create our own which is how matriarchy can, essentially um, but as it relates to NYW Uh, We do a lot of work within Matriarch to uh, help um, find our own people, Um, and we have been very successful. Just this last year, we had three young girls uh, who went missing, two of which were my former students uh, at a school that I worked, uh, that I was the traditional health and wellness teacher for. Um, We came together as a community. We couldn't get um, police involvement. We could not get their assistance in helping us with the search. Um, and so we, we, we found our own search party. We had um, indigenous people as far as Central Texas who were driving up, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Arkansas, people who did not even know these young uh, girls to participate in a community-led uh, search. Um, we, we, we brought people into Myspace, which I host um, searches in the metro area uh, for young girls, boys and men who've been missing. Um, and we teach our, uh, our volunteers how to search uh, for our people. Uh, we train them. Like we give them a very quick training on here. You know, here's, where, here's the area to case. Uh, we have a large map that's been created. We're very strategic in the teams that we put together to go uh, enter these neighborhoods. Um, we teach them how to knock on doors, what to say, what not to say. We work with the families uh, of um, those who have gone missing uh, to help them navigate the system, uh, to help them file claims, file reports, and to continue to move through the system because that's a big barrier and a challenge for us as well. Um, and so, so you know, we, we, we have been successful. We tend to just find our own people. We don't get a lot of press uh, coverage as well. Um, it's, it's rare to never that that happens. Um, and so, so to answer that question, um, there, it, it, I would just have to say there's a lot of excuses, um, as to why, uh, the, um, local, um, county, state governments can't lend resources to search for our people who go missing at an alarming rate, just as you mentioned. It. Everything you you said is so terrible to hear, and
0: um, I'm super encouraged by organizations like yours that really are trying to be a solution in your own community. Um, It's so admirable to see the problem and say, it's not their problem, it's ours, Um, and we all need to be more like that. Thank you for being so inspiring in that way. If you are a friend or a family member or any other kind of community member, um, I'd like to talk about the telltale signs of abuse. We all engage with people every day and maybe we don't know what we need to do in those kinds of situations. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what we should do if we notice any of these signs and Kendra, we'll go ahead and start with you.
3: Yeah, sure. And thank you again for the opportunity to to join you all today and talk through these issues. you know, uh, again, I'll I'll, I'll reference matriarch. Um, We are in our sixth year of operating. Uh, We've got an alum uh, membership, which is uh, about 150 women. We currently have two chapters, one in Oklahoma City, one in in Tulsa, uh, with each uh, consisting of about 35 or so women. Uh, So we're serving a lot of, 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 of indigenous women and children in the state of Oklahoma. Um, each year we conduct a confidential uh, anonymous survey uh, to collect data uh, because we know that uh, that's also another challenge um, within our own communities I know of is, is access to data. Um, and, and what we have found is, is that um, 100% um, of our women each and every year report uh, that they have uh, and or are currently um, you know, on the receiving end of, of, of abuse, uh, domestic abuse, uh, sexual violence, all 100% of have been uh, a victim to this. Um, so what we've done um, is, is we've kind of tried to focus our programming, uh, not just on that trauma healing piece of it, but also um, picking up on, you know, let, let's watch these ladies very closely throughout our chapter year. the kinds of questions that they ask, if they stop attending, um, we are always really curious when we start talking about domestic uh, violence, um, domestic abuse. Um, and when we're talking about ICWA, we start talking about VAWA. Um, and and, and on those ladies that tend to not attend those classes, we really focus on, on that and because we know the absence of those hard uh, discussions is sometimes an indicator uh, that, that that may be too close uh, maybe that's too scary maybe i just it's a trauma trigger i can't be there for that so we we add an additional layer of love and outreach to those women um, to to on a one-on-one basis just to reach out uh, to check in and more times than not we find that you know there, there was a reason for that absence um, so so paying attention to those in, at least internally for matriarch just absence um, withdrawal um, you know, not not participating um, in our cultural activities or the discussion, um, just those are real big telltale signs uh, for us. If we're getting calls from family members that um, young ones are not going to school, um, that's a big telltale sign um, as well. When, when the young ones start uh, not attending school, we know that there's uh, transportation challenges, power and control, typically um, our know, we are We're getting locked in the houses uh, for lack of a better term, from time to time. So some of those have been uh, those really uh, glaring uh, tells uh, for us when we are jumping into action pretty quickly when those things are happening. And that's besides the obvious, right? You know, just those, those visual marks, markings, um, uh, substance abuse. Uh, those, those. those, those more common ones, uh, withdrawal and some of the
0: symptoms around withdrawal. we uh, uh, with Kim. Is there anything you'd like
2: to add? Sure. Um, those are all good examples, Kendra. Um, what I think is a really common one is isolation from friends and family, um, the financial dependence, and it can be very confusing for people in new relationships of like oh, this person loves me so much. They only want to spend time with me and they want to spend time with me all the time. And so it comes across initially as like very flattering Mm -hmm. um, and can be misinterpreted. Um, And and it's a tactic that abusers use time and time again. It's like textbook. Um, There's also minimizing and denying the person's feelings, moving really quickly in a relationship. Like it's pretty common to see in relationships within few months they're talking about engagement or marriage or children and those um are pretty serious things that get you locked into a relationship um, and dependent on that person um and so that those are common tactics you also see male privilege used a lot of believing male is better than the female that they should be in control they should make all the decisions a woman is to submit and be in a really submissive role and um versus like a partnership and an equal relationship um so those are the big ones that we see
0: absolutely kate is there anything you'd like to add
1: there isn't really i mean those are yeah kim and kendra nailed it on the on the you know textbook signs um as far as what what we should do when we notice those things um, one of the best resources sometimes can just be a wellness check you know when kids do not show up to school or people don't show up to work for extended periods of time or isolation um, and a wellness check doesn't necessarily mean through law enforcement any type of wellness check right just letting them know that um, People are here and they're observing the missing, the isolation or the minimization of behaviors or any other of those reasons why um, would would accredit a wellness check. And so I think when we can attune our own selves to saying, if nothing else, I'm just checking on your mental health. How are things going? Right. So it, it, it can really help sometimes just to check in.
0: I really appreciate that. As a friend, that's what we should all be doing anyway, given any circumstance. So why not in a circumstance that could actually be very dangerous? Um, That's a very, very good point. I'd like to talk lastly about reconciliation. Although it's very difficult, it is possible. Um, Let's hear some more about programs that are available and what kinds of success rates we're seeing with people who have been through these programs. Kate, let's start with you.
1: Sure. Um, well, that's what family builders really works on. We do that through the batterers intervention program. Um, it's, it's totally possible. People change every day for one reason or another. I think the hope of change is what brings people through our door. Um, and I think what they leave or they leave with the time and the effort and the intentional focus that is required of change um, Our our programs 52 weeks long, we have a really I mean we meet once a week for an hour and a half, we have really great individuals that. Um, help the process of change with with people that have really high need for control and power, I think it's really important to hold these people accountable for their behaviors and i will say it's been such a great game changer when we can expect the accountability level on on our programmatical side but when the laws do not hold them to the same accountability it is it was it's almost impossible to really hold individuals to the level that they need to be held to and we still have so much work to do on our advocacy side to to be there but it is improving and i will say that um You know, when there are more forces holding these individuals accountable, like law enforcement or laws, on top of the social service diversion programs and um, things of that nature, we can really work towards um, reconciliation. And that's not always reunification, right? I think that's an important distinction to make. We're not advocating that people get back together with their abuser or stay with them. In fact, we really we really uh, encourage our victims to leave, um, because that is definitely a, an important process for boundaries for not just the victim but also the abuser. Um, but reconciliation, I don't, I don't think I would be able to do the work that we do without knowing that we have people that change in such a dramatic way that it is. The reconciliation that they have with their families, especially their children, when their child can see such, you know, awful outcomes of behaviors and choices and control, controlling needs, and how that person can change and make that change not just for themselves, but obviously for the family. And um, nothing is a more powerful lesson to a child of learning everything can be different when there's enough effort and focus on the intentional need of of that outcome. So absolutely, it's very hard. It doesn't always happen the first go around. But I think if we continue to move where we're going, it's possible.
0: Mm. That is a great point about modeling the example of what a cycle breaker looks like. We've talked a lot about the parents involved, um, the women, but of course also the men like we discussed, um, but but that consideration on how you're modeling that your kids can have a different life and a different relationship with their spouse than the one that they've been shown so far is is really important as well. Kim, is there anything you'd like to add?
2: I just want to say that um, this is a heavy topic and sometimes it seems like overwhelming and really daunting, but I think it's important to realize that solutions exist. We are working in the right direction and um, at Palomar, we get to see change every day and it's amazing and it's exciting, but there's still so much work to do. But we know like when professionals come together and work together, we can have a bigger impact and survivors and their children win. Um, the accountability Kate mentioned is so important and critical, um, to intervention and change, um, and, um, also like individual therapy for survivors and the abusers, because they both have very different needs, um, safety planning. Um, and we've seen a lot of great success through our children's programming and, um, programming as a family with like the non-offending parent and the children and really treating that as a whole has been really profound and had some great success stories from that. I just want to say like a note to survivors out there that are listening, like we hear you, we see you, and we stand with you. And if you ever need help, please contact one of our agencies because we're honored to help.
3: Thank you for adding that. Kendra? Yeah, I, I, what I would like to say is, is that in terms of reconciliation, um, we at Matriarchs, so we have a nine-month We program for nine months, Um, and and within that nine months, we have uh, three very specific uh, sections, if you will. Uh, The first uh, part and piece of our programming is focused on trauma healing. It's focused on understanding generational historical trauma. Um, and how that uh, shapes and forms and holds itself. Um, we we encourage height. Indigenous people in our circles, for as long as we've been indigenous people walking these lands, we have always always brought our babies along with us in our circles. That's how they learn. Uh, that's how they they learn tools. That's how they learn healthy relationships. That's how they learn. And so. Um, at Matriarch, our mamas do bring their kids along if they, they know the topics ahead of time, what we're going to discuss, and they make, of course, the decision as to whether or not to, to have the babies in the room with them as we're going through these very heavy uh, topics. More times than not, um, mamas are, are, they've got those babies on those hips, they've got those young ones sitting next to them taking notes, um, and they're sharing their stories, but also getting to hear the other women around the table share their stories as well. So, so kind of phase one, if you will, uh, is that understanding of that trauma, understanding historically uh, and generationally uh, how that has impacted us. We move our second piece of the programming um, into advocacy and solutions. Um, So then we are really focusing in and digging in on on that solutions aspect of it, because we don't want to stay in that trauma forever. We don't want to stay in that and that hurt and that pain and that harm. Our third uh, phase that we move into is empowerment. Um, And that is the phase where we see the healing, um, we see the connection, we see um, reconciliation in some instances. And we also see women who are living on their own. They have a job, they've employed themselves and they're taking care of their kids and they're purchasing a car for the first time. Um, And so, and or um, we've seen women who are running for office Um, in the last three years, we've had seven women. Uh, run for office in different parts of, of, of the state as well. So so we have phased that um, and have found a tremendous amount of of healing um, uh, and, and you know health uh, and wellness in in, in, in the process. And, And and the best thing that we can do is bring our babies along because right then and there, they are experiencing and watching and seeing their moms break those cycles, break free of of the things that have harmed them. And our hope is, of course, that we've taught those babies lifelong lessons and we have broken those generational uh, uh, trauma cycles.
0: Such powerful imagery to think about a mom trying to help herself out of a difficult situation with baby on her hip. I feel like we've all been there um, as moms and parents and and just trying to do better for our kids and give them a better future than we all had. Thank you three for sharing so much. I mean, this was, This is an outstanding interview. Um, I'm going to link uh, contact information for each of your organizations and agencies within the show notes. So if anyone is looking for uh, services from Palomar Family Builders or Matriarch, um, that will be linked in the profile um, if you're listening or whether you're watching online. If anyone listening has suspected or witnessed abuse, the statewide abuse and neglect hotline number is 1-800- 522-3511. If you yourself are a victim, the safe line number that you can use at any time is 1-800-522-7233. Thank you so much ladies for joining me today and all of this valuable and heartfelt information and for all of the work that the three of you are doing. It is so important um, for the furtherment of, of our kids, for the furtherment of our state uh caregivers are the backbone of our economy and that's women and we need to make sure and protect mm-hmm. them so thank you so much
3: thank you so much thank you thank you